You know, right now my wife is in Jamaica visiting our eight-year-old son uh, that we are in the process of uh, adopting. And she's hanging out with him. Um, the last few days we've been trying to adopt from Jamaica since 2011. Uh, I know adoption sometimes takes a while. And we've known him since April. And we visit him a few times and we're excited about him one day coming here, if we can work through all the uh, legal issues and court issues and immigration, he should be here eventually. And we're just praying for him. His name is Daniel. We're, we're excited. And, you know, it's interesting that today is, is um, National or International Adoption Day, where we think about those, even within our own country, hundreds of thousands of adoptable children who need homes, who need people to invite them into their family and become a part of their family. And there's a lot of encouraging, and there can be a lot of discouraging stats. But one of the things that I was sad uh, this week, um, in talking to Daniel through FaceTime with my wife, um, we, my wife took over my, my son's old DSs for him to just play, uh, you know, DS. It's okay if you don't know what it is, but anyway, he's playing in the, in the hotel room. And, um, and it was really sad to me because... Uh, they, they said that, he said, yeah, I've played the DS and I only get to play it one day out of the year on Christmas Day. I don't know why that made me so sad, but I just like, oh, it's such a bummer. I just feel bad for him. And, uh, but anyway, I just want to tell you that story that my wife's in Jamaica. And I want to tell you that she's there because I, I feel the freedom to tell you about all of our marital problems while she's not here. She's, I mean, there's no live feed, I don't think. I don't think she's paying attention to your Facebook thing, Paul, that you're doing right now, but uh, she's not going to know this. Um, so I'm not going to tell you all of our problems, but, you, but at least one of them, all right? At the end of August, my wife and I had a clash in the kitchen. You see, the, the sadness and stress we're picking up, we're about to send our, our firstborn son off to college. By the way, he's back this morning. Come say hi to him if you want to. So... We are anticipating uh, getting him out of the house, and uh, a conflict happened in the kitchen. It doesn't matter who was right or who was wrong. It really doesn't matter who was right at all. Doesn't matter at all. But as we had this conflict in the kitchen, um, it was over a trivial matter, but we were both digging in. Like, neither one of us were budging, and we're still going at it. And I don't know if you've ever had that before, where you feel like, I'm digging in, and I'm not going to budge. So we kind of went to our corners and nursed our hurt feelings, and we're trying to come out again for the next round. Uh, but eventually, thankfully, um, the way these things resolve, hopefully for the most part in our marriages, eventually one person will go to the other and say, will you forgive me? And then we'll say, will you forgive me for what I said? And then there's, there's restoration, resolution, and reconciliation. And, and that has been the, the pattern of my marriage where we have conflict, hurt, and resolution. That's where you want to obviously get to. Conflict, hurt, and uh, resolution. And every single marriage is going to have conflict unless they're both dead <laughs> or one person dominates over the other or a husband and a wife are simply living as roommates. Then there will be no conflict. But for most marriages, especially healthy marriages, will have a conflict. Now, the issue is not the conflict. It's what you do with it, right? And what we started talking about last week is that marriage is not just supposed to make you happy, 
but it's also to make you holy. That God is doing a work inside you and inside your spouse to grow you, to mature you, and to make you more like Christ. And so this week we're going to pick up again talking about happiness and holiness in marriage. And I'm not going to go through this whole thing of how to, um, you know, resolve conflict and go into all the details. I will a little bit. But this morning I want to talk about my heart, your heart in conflict. And I would even go as far as to say the way you handle conflict in your family of origin or even as a single person will often carry into the way you handle conflict in marriage. And that's why I think it's important to understand what's going on in your heart. And that's why we want to say in conflict you want hearts full of grace that are attempting to move toward the other, right? When a heart full of grace attempting to move toward the other. In order to see this, back in Song of Songs. So go ahead and turn there. Song of Songs, today we're going to be in chapter 6. And so far, the couple's been happy and they've had a wedding and a honeymoon. And last week we saw a little bit of tension arise in relationship. So all is not well. And they must keep looking at how to resolve their issues. And that's why we keep coming back to look at the bigger picture, Song of Songs. It's just all, all about the man and the woman. There's a bigger picture of a greater love that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to keep coming back to. Because when you have conflict in your marriage, you need to go to Christ for fulfillment, to find your identity, and to find grace so that you can start moving toward your spouse with love and grace and mercy. So let's see this this morning. Hearts full of grace moving toward one another in marriage. You ready? Chapter 6. Oh, chapter 6. Yes, chapter 6, verse 4. You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Huh. Well, I don't know. That doesn't really sound like conflict. <laughs> in the midst of conflicts, you are not comparing your spouse to beautiful and lovely royal cities, are you? I mean, that's, this is what this guy is doing. He's comparing her to these royal and beautiful cities, and he says, that's the way you are, uh, my love. I grew up in a, a part of Dallas called Pleasant Grove. Most people have never heard of it, uh, which is interesting. Um, Antonio here this morning, he was actually in Pleasant Grove this past week for some work, and he emailed me and said, hey, where'd you live? And so he went to take pictures of my old school and my old house. It's pretty wild. He sent those to me. That's pretty cool. I appreciate that, Antonio. But as I was growing up, uh, this place, the Pleasant Grove of Dallas, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, people would make fun of it. They would call it the armpit of Texas. No joke. And so if I'm in a conflict with my wife, right, I'm thinking, you know, do you want to say, honey, you're just like Pleasant Grove. You're like a stinky, smelly armpit. Right? That's the kind of the words you want to use. You won't use those words, but not this guy. He doesn't compare his wife to Pleasant Grove. He compares you to this beautiful, as tears and lovely as Jerusalem. And you're thinking, well, what's going on? If they're having conflict, why is he using positive language toward her in the conflict? You see, we left off in chapter 5 last week, and remember the conflict they had? I can't talk about it this morning, but anyway. <laughs> they had conflict over an issue. You can look it up later. Um, and she pursues him. She wants to reconcile. But we never hear from the guy. 
Well, this week we're hearing from the guy and how he's dealing with conflict, and we're going to say he's going to move toward her with words of grace and love. Anybody do that? When you're in conflict with your spouse, you're moving toward them with grace and love. Yeah, not, not most of us, right? Look at verse 5. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. He's telling her, your eyes are so powerful, they're overwhelming. It's like you're winning me with your eyes. And even in this conflict, he is captured and overwhelmed. Keep going in verse 5. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Now, for those of you who've been with us in Song of Songs, you're supposed to say, oh, that sounds familiar. That lingo, I've heard it before. Where? Well, that's the lingo that he used on their wedding night. So even in the midst of the conflict, he is using words that he used to her on their wedding night. It's almost like he's taking her back to their vows and the commitment they have to one another. He is a man who is committed to this woman, and he's showing it by his words. Now, I shared last week that there was a guy down in Dallas-Fort Worth area. His name was Tommy Nelson, and I really respect him. And he's done so much teaching on love and marriage. And he um, talks about something called the, the 16 axiomatic nevers. You don't have to write these down, by the way. 16 axiomatic nevers. Now, axiomatic, that means self-evident. Here are some self-evident things that you should never do in marriage. I know they're self-evident, but many of us do these things, including me. So here's 16 things you should never do in marital conflict, all right? You ready for this? You don't have to write them down. Just raise your hand high if it describes you. No, you don't have to do that either. All right, here we go. Never speak rashly. Number two, never confront your mate publicly. Number three, Never confront your spouse in your children's presence. Or four, never use your children in the conflict. Number five, never say never or always. You never, you always. Don't do that. Number six, never resort to name calling. Number seven, never get historical. You know what I'm talking about there? Bringing stuff up from the past. Don't do that. Never stomp out of the room or leave. (laughs) Number nine, never raise your voice in anger. Number 10, never bring family members into the discussion unless they are a direct part of the problem being addressed. Number 11, never win through reasoning or logic and never out-argue. That's got to work here for this community, right? If I could just give enough logic, my spouse would get it. Yeah. Number 12, never be condescending. Number 13, never demean. Number 14, never accuse your spouse with you statements. You. you, mm -mm, Don't do that. Verse 15, never allow an argument to begin if both of you are overly tired 
<laughs> if one of you is under the influence of chemicals, or if one of you is physically ill, yeah? And never, number 16, never touch your spouse in a harmful manner. We're trying to say, we see in the word a man and a woman who are attempting to move toward one another with grace, mercy, kindness, understanding, not in accusations. Well, let's look as the man continues. I'm going to kind of, okay, for those of you, just read between the lines what I'm saying here. All right, here we go. Verse 8. He says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? <laughs> okay, we get the poetic imagery of being compared to nature. Beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, right? You can say that to your, to your bride, that's great. But what's hard to understand is the concept of him saying <laughs> that she is better than 140 other. <laughs> She's better than 60 queens and 80 concubines. And I have a lot to say here, but I'm not going to say it. But like, what are you doing, man? You're saying that your, your, your wife is better than all these other girls. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, this, so this brings us to the issue of, of authorship, right? Like, who, who wrote this book? Now, here's the first view. That King Solomon wrote this song about himself and his relationship with his first wife. But here's the tension. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So if, if this song is about Solomon to his bride, then perhaps it's a song that he wrote to his first wife before he went off the rails, and that's a good possibility. Or it could be a love song that he wrote in his old age as if he was repenting and writing for others to do as I say and not as I do. Well, a second view is that King Solomon wrote this love song about a man and a woman so that every man and every woman could relate to the song. I like that view more, a little bit better, because it, I think that's what's going on, is that this man in this poetry, in this song, is praising her, is better than all other women, because she is the perfect one whom he loves. He's basically telling her that he is, he's not going to be dumped, she's not going to be dumped for a better deal. Does your spouse know that? That they will not be dumped for a better deal. Whether it's a better deal online, uh, a better deal, an emotional connection with someone else. Is your spouse confident? You're not, not going to dump you for a better deal. You won't dump them. In my last church in, in Santa Monica, in California, we were sitting around on our Wednesday night kind of Bible study, just guys, and we're all with, within our first five years of marriage, and we were all just sitting around and, and talking about, man, it's so hard being married. So, I mean, we're just going on and on how difficult it was. And this one guy is a good friend of mine, but he's such a character. He says, he said, have you ever noticed that people on their second marriages are so much happier than those on their first? Yeah, that was funny, but that's not helpful, right? 
Because when you start bringing up that kind of thinking and, and that kind of thought, you're thinking, you know, maybe I didn't pick the right person. I didn't marry right. Maybe there's a better deal out there. Not this guy. Not this girl. They're exclusively locked in on their love for one another. Now we're getting to the best part. I want you to watch her response to his movements of grace. This is beautiful. Watch. This is so good. Look at verse 11. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Oh, this is so good. So the, the imagery is her. She's going to this garden with some hope of a little fruit. You see it? To see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. She's trying to see if the relationship can be salvaged. She's unsteady. She's, she's cautious because uh, in this conflict, she, she doesn't know what's going to happen. What is she going to get in approaching this man? What's, he gonna, what's she going to get? And then the best verse in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Before I was aware... My desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. What does that mean? It means this. The man blew her away with his love and grace. She was hesitant and she hoped for some restoration, but she got tons of grace and love that made her feel like that she had been swept up off her feet like a princess by her prince. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful poetic language that's indicating that he moved toward her with grace and made her feel like a, a princess. That's, that's awesome. Now, you may be wondering, well, did that just happen right away? You know, I'm sure there was some conversations about the problem. There was some, will you forgive me? There was some, some, some reconciliation. But the key thing is, is this guy is moving toward her with grace. He is gentle with her. He is not harsh. New Testament language, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. New Testament language, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. He moves toward her in grace. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you're thinking logically, you may be thinking, well, if I move toward my spouse in grace, how will they ever change? Yeah? Like, if I got a lot of grace, but they're not changing, so I got to give grace today, and you mean to tell me I got to give grace again tomorrow? Well, how are they ever going to change? I read something this week that was really, really, just really opened my eyes. I want you to really listen to this. It says, judgment, criticism, guilt, or shame can produce short-term change. So when you're in conflict and if you want to judge your spouse, criticize them, you want to guilt them or shame them, chances are you may get a little short-term change, maybe. 
but meaningful. If you want long-term change, inside-out change, that is nurtured by grace. You want to get to a point where you're creating this environment where an individual uh, experiences acceptance in spite of what they've done. That's grace. That's the way that personal transformation takes root. Is I want you to really think about this. In your conflicts as a single, with your parents, mom or dad, with your family, in your marriage, with your kids, are you trying to guilt and shame people to change? Are you trying to criticize them and judge them to change? We're all guilty of this. You may get short-term change. But if you want long-term change within your heart and in their heart, you've got to create an environment of grace. It doesn't mean you don't talk about issues. You talk about issues. But when you start going after them with criticism and judgment, it's just not going to work long-term. That's so beautiful. So beautiful. Now, due to the G nature of this sermon, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm not going to read the rest of the passage. If you ever come to church and the pastor would not read it, you can go read it on your own at home. Don't read it right now. Read it later. Um, let's just say they kiss and make up. All right, we'll leave it at that. All right, that's good enough. This is the way I want to end. I want you to think about conflict you may be in right now, maybe with your spouse. Think about grace that you could offer. Consider these questions, all right? There's three of them, these three. Do your arguments between you and your spouse or another, have a winner and a loser. When you and your spouse are going at it, is there a winner and a loser? If there's a winner and a loser, basically there's both, both of you are losers, right? Second question. Is it difficult for you to respond with love after you've been hurt? Your spouse hurts you, maybe you shut down. Maybe you run away. There's no way you want to give grace. You were just hurt. Is it difficult for you to respond with love after you've been hurt? And the last one is, what wrongs do you find difficult to forgive? What wrongs do you find difficult to forgive? Now check this out. If you think about it, I am calling you from the word of God to love someone that does not deserve it. How can you possibly love someone who does not deserve it, who has clearly hurt you and clearly wronged you? How can you possibly, I don't know who it is, maybe it's your parents, boyfriend, girlfriend, or your your spouse, I don't know. But how can you love someone who doesn't deserve it? How's that even possible? How's that even humanly possible? Let me flip that on you. How could God possibly love you when you don't deserve it. You don't. Let me just put to you straight up, if if I'm being honest with what I read in the Bible, you deserve wrath. You deserve eternal punishment in hell forever and ever and ever. And what do you get instead? You get grace. You get mercy. You get Christ in your place, bearing the wrath of God on the cross, the holiness of God and wrath is poured out upon Christ, and you get grace by faith. You get forgiveness. You get acceptance. 
you who are completely unlovable get loved. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you get filled with the Spirit and you get empowered to do what? To love others. Even when they don't deserve it. Because you don't either. And you get it no matter what from the Father through repentance and faith. And now, as impossible it may sound, you can dish it out to others. You can let it flow to others. It's not easy. It's hard. And you can do it one day. And you can wake up. And God will give you enough grace to do it again. Now, I know some of you, I'm, I've been to marital counseling before, and in marriage counseling, I'm not talking about me giving marriage counseling, I mean me in marriage counseling, I've asked myself the question, how in the world can I live in such conflict the rest of my life? Have you ever been so bad in a, in a marriage or a conflict, you ask, like, how can I live this way the rest of my life? This is too hard. And the counselor said, hey, man, you don't have to live this way the rest of your life. Just today. And if God gives you grace to wake up tomorrow, well, then you can do it again another day. And if you go, then again another day. And over time, by God's grace, he's been transforming me, my wife, and our marriage. And no matter how bad it may seem right now, there's a lot of grace there for you. By God's grace, you can take it in and give it out. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. You're gracious. Cannot believe you saved us. We do not deserve it. We deserve wrath and hell, and we get, we get grace and mercy, eternal life through faith in Jesus. Cannot believe it. Praise you. So, Lord, we, we know this vertical reconciliation with you, but when we struggle at times with the horizontal love and grace and mercy and, and restoration and, and reconciliation, even with people with our own family, even with our spouse, and I know there's some marriages in here right, just right now just struggling, and I just ask that you would let them know that you care, that you love them, that you're there for them. And when they keep going back to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, and may you shower them with your grace. And, and may, over time, that you start to heal some of these broken relationships. And may these brothers and sisters in here not wait for the other to take the first step. Right now, convict them right now to be the one that takes the first step. Whether that's parents with their kids, kids with their parents, husbands with wives, wives, may they take the first step. May they not wait for someone else to try to come and reconcile. Even someone listening to this message right now, may they not wait for the other to come and reconcile. May they take the initiative of grace as you have done with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.